And sorry, I know you guys wanted to clap, but everything I'm going to say is going to be amazing. Um, <laughs> how do you pay, man? Uh, if you don't write checks, how do you pay these guys? Great cash, homie. Mama, there goes that man. Hello and welcome to episode 58 of Carson Sack Podcast, where we talk balls. We have a fun show to do today. We have the usual balls to talk about. We have NFL, we have college football. I'm going to briefly at the end touch on the MLB playoffs since they just started. And then a fun little segment that I was a little concerned about how the listener responses would be but I got a lot from a lot of different people so I appreciate everyone saying that in so that is going to be the first thing we get to is this new segment not new just a new segment for this week it's not going to be reoccurring or anything like that but with a big week in wrestling coming up this week I wanted to do sort of something different and so I put out on my social medias for everyone to send in if they wanted to a athlete and I would compare them to a wrestler that they reminded me of so I got a lot of responses um that's the first thing we're going to get to on this episode of Carson Sack so before we do that I have to remind you and want to thank you for listening first off but also want to and need to remind you to like rate review subscribe all that good shit on iTunes and SoundCloud so Let's dive right into this little wrestling sports segment. The first person that sent something in was Caroline Krill, and she asked for herself to be compared. Now, this is quite an easy little joke to make. No no pun intended there with the little joke either, but... Um, obviously, right away, you could say Hornswoggle, given the stature, the height, um, how they were involved in things. But that's too easy. That's low-hanging fruit that I'm not going to go after. So, ultimately, Caroline Quill, you, athletically-wise, remind me of Rey Mysterio. Probably the best little man in all of wrestling history. The way you both performed on the field and then him performing in the ring, just one and one. It goes hand in hand, just associated with greatness um, for your own, for each other's heights, how well he did in the ring and how well you did on the field hockey field. It's it's a no-brainer for you to be compared to Rey Mysterio. Next, we have Polly Marino doing the same thing, asking for herself to be compared to someone. And I am going to compare Polly Marino to Randy Orton simply for the fact that I find both of them quite annoying. And that's about it. But on a very serious note, Randy Orton is one of the best wrestlers of this generation and is, I think, in the grand scheme of wrestling greats, super underrated. So take whatever you want with that, Polly. But. I do compare you to him just strictly based on being annoyed by both of you. The next one comes from Jake Brockoff, who asks, Can you do Uncle Rico, the best athlete on the face of this earth? Now, this is also another thing that I was struggling with was I'm like, I know wrestling, I know a lot of wrestlers, and there might be some people that I know that people do not know, but to me, this is 
a no-brainer. Uncle Rico most resembles and is like Val Venus to me. The sex appeal both of these guys have, how great they were and how they carried themselves. There are no one higher and no one better for how these two come across. So Uncle Rico is like Val Venus to me. If you know who Val Venus is, look him up. Um, in- incredible character. Next, from Jack Muldoon, we have Du LeBron. I think this one's kind of easy. I think The Rock is exactly like LeBron. Both the guys entered their perspective fields at an extremely young age and grew into things. And it took them going from the good guy to going to the bad guy. So LeBron going from Cleveland to um, Miami. And then The Rock going from being the good guy to the bad guy. For them to really grow into themselves and become what they ultimately would be. LeBron, a three-time champion. The Rock, one of the best on the microphone, one of the best WWE champions of all time. So to me, those two go hand-in-hand. LeBron is The Rock. The Rock is LeBron in this comparison. Next, Kennedy Poston, a frequent uh, sender in on things when I ask on social media. So thank you very much. Kennedy Poston says, Carson Karras, who do you think you are in the wrestling world right now if I was going to pair myself to any wrestler I think my fighting style and how I would want to be thought of and everything would be Samoa Joe if you don't know who that is he's been around for like since the early 2000s and is now at WWE and is killing it and bigger guy but moves so agile on his feet does all these dives and everything has a great character so I if I was going to compare myself Um, Very humbly speaking, I think I would want to be Samoa Joe. The next person that sent something in was Brad Pollard. Uh, Before I get into any comparisons here, he sent me three names. Before I do any of that, just a big congrats to Brad. He was recently married. Sent this in, these questions on his honeymoon, so I appreciate the dedication and his support um, during this special time in his life. So, Again, before I get into anything of a comparison, just congratulations to Brad and his new wife. So, wishing you all many, many years, uh, forever years, of happiness uh, together. So, first he asked Glenn Big Baby Davis. I think that, right away, screams to me Mark Henry. Two big, imposing guys that a little underappreciated at the start of their careers, but then when Glenn Davis got his chance to sign in the finals with Nate Robinson and when Mark Henry got the chance to be WWE champion as well, both of them in big moments shined. Next, he asked about Ken Griffey Jr. I think a second-generation wrestler and superstar, just like Ken Griffey Jr. was a second-generation baseball player that we could look at is Eddie Guerrero. Both of those guys loved immensely. Both of those guys insanely talented and I don't think either one of those guys had like a bad Ken Griffey not have a bad game and Eddie Guerrero couldn't have a bad match they were just the model of consistency and another comparison Ken Griffey Jr.'s swing Eddie Guerrero's frog splash just both pure so pure between those two things that they would do then he asked Arnold Palmer and says want to make a tough on you Arnold Palmer to me I think you could say is the Ric Flair. I think Jack Nicholas would probably be Hulk Hogan. I know you didn't ask about that, but this goes into the comparison. I think Hulk Hogan is everybody's like base wrestler of who they think of really when wrestling is brought up. So Jack Nicholas, I think, does the same with golf. But Ric Flair is 
probably the second name that comes to a lot of people's mind. Just how I think Arnold Palmer comes to a lot of people's mind. Second behind Jack Nicholas And the way that Ric Flair carried himself and how Arnold Palmer had a bit of flair to him as well. No pun intended. I think it makes the perfect comparison for Ric Flair to be compared to Arnold Palmer. Next, we have Addy Miners who sends in Benny Snell. Now, you got to follow me here on this because sort of going out on a limb here, but to me, this makes sense. To me, Benny Snell is like Jeff Hardy. So, the way I'm going to rationalize this is Benny Snell totally changed the way people thought about Kentucky football. And he put his body on the line every game with how many times he would carry the ball and whatnot. So he would risk his own health to change the way people viewed Kentucky football and to be taken serious. Jeff Hardy did the same thing with jumping off ladders through tables and all the stunts he would do. So Jeff Hardy changed the way we thought about wrestling and doing all these stunts and things and put his body on the line just how Benny Snell did. I know that to some might be a little a bit of a reach, but to me that is a good comparison. Next, Andrew Schaefer says Tom Brady. To me, again, no brainer whatsoever. Tom Brady is John Cena. Both these guys uh, are synonymous with the Boston culture. John Cena from Westbury, uh, New Massachusetts. Tom Brady on the Patriots as well. Just, I think, when I think of wrestlers and NFL players, Tom Brady is pretty, like the face of the NFL, Tom Brady. The face of the WWE for so many years sort of still is John Cena. They just go hand in hand to me on how easy of a comparison those two are. Next, Jack Newcomer says Vontez Perfect. To me, this is Umaga. If you watch the WWE at all in the mid-2000s, Umaga came in and was just a destructive force. And that's really all Vontez Perfect is now, is this destructive force that just goes out there and tries to hurt people. Not really, but does more times than not end up hurting people, just like Umaga did. So if you don't... Remember Umaga, you have no idea who the hell I'm talking about. Look him up, RIP to Umaga. But to me, those are the comparisons for each other. Molly Reese sends in Mia Ham. So, to me, this is sort of like one I did for Brad. With Mia Ham, I think a lot of other people, when it comes time to think of women's soccer, Within today's culture, they'll think of Abby Wambach. Right now, it's Rapino, who is sort of like comes to your forefront. Um, but Mia Ham is Ham is like one of, if not the best, all-time women soccer players ever. So to me, she is a little bit like Lita, the wrestler from back in the day, who Trish Stratus is really thought of as the mid, like from 1999 until like. 2009 like Trish Stratus was the women wrestler in WWE and so Lita was sort of the second fiddle to her I think Mia Hamm is playing the second fiddle to all these other people now that 
in the grand scheme of things, if you sat down and looked at everything, you would be like, wow, Meeham is like probably the best. And I think Lita, if you sat down and looked at it, that she could be considered probably one of, if not the best, female wrestlers of all time. Polly Romito comes back again and asks about Bo Jackson and Antonio Brown. To me, Bo Jackson is like Brock Lesnar. Both these guys uh, could do anything in the world athletically and succeed at it. It feels like both genetic freaks athletically. So to me, Bo Jackson, Brock Lesnar is the perfect comparison. Then she asks about Antonio Brown. I'm going to go with Michelle McCool. She was one of the last diva champions and Antonio Brown is just a diva. So there we go. Next, Zach Berger sends in Gardner Minshew. Again, this one was super easy. Gardner Minshew is like Kurt Angle. Both American heroes. Kurt Angle won the 1996 gold medal in wrestling with a broken freaking neck. And Gardner Minshew is right now the hottest thing going in America. So it's no-brainer to me, Gardner Minshew, Kurt Angle. The final person that sent in a couple names, Ryan Moore asked about P.J. Tucker and Draymond Green. So first, I'm going to go with P.J. Tucker. I think he is most like Scott Hall. I go with this comparison because P.J. Tucker and Scott Hall were are both part of bigger things collectively. P.J. Tucker being on the Rockets and Scott Hall being in the NWO, they are never the vocal points of those groups of their team but they do the dirty work that nobody else on the team will do to make sure the team is successful and both are never going to go out and perform poorly pj tucker always has a good stat line scott hall would always have a good game and off off the court and out of the ring, P.J. Tucker has some of the best swag in all of sports. And Scott Hall carries himself with such a cool swagger that I think those two, perfect comparison. The final comparison here that Ryan sent in was Draymond Green. And this is really going to pain me to say this because the wrestler I'm comparing him to is holds a special place in my wrestling fandom that was one of my favorites going up. I think Draymond Green is most like Edge. I say this because when both of those guys started to embrace being the bad guy, that that's when their careers really took off. Draymond Green does so many of the little things, and Edge would do so many of the little things and matches to make them better. And as I said, Draymond Green sort of not afraid to say anything, not afraid to piss anybody off or do anything to win. Edge carried himself that same way when he was the champion. So to me, the those two, I think, are as close as you could get to being similar. Uh, those were not the last ones. I just went back and looked at my mentions and stuff. So... I have a couple more. Wes Rutledge also asked about Gardner Minshew, so I applied the Kurt Angle to that as well for him. Um, Christina Barone asked about Maeve Armstrong. So, to me, this... I think we just need to go with Trish Stratus. I mentioned earlier how she was sort of the face of the women's wrestling in WWE for a while, so... Maeve, the ultimate compliment I could pay you, uh, comparing you to Trish Stratus. Eli George sends in Cody Parkey. This is going to be a deep dive into things here, showing my wrestling fandom, but Rikishi, 
I think is like Cody Parkey because the WWE gave Rikishi a chance to be a main event guy, elevate his status um, in wrestling, and like Cody Parkey did when they both got a moment to shine and be bigger stars than what they were, they both blew it. And I don't think it's really ultimately on Rikishi's part that he blew it. A couple things go into that, the storylines, but Cody Parkey ultimately blowing it and Rikishi ultimately blowing his big chance as well. And then Ali Stevens with the last one, one of my dedicated uh, listeners and friends sends in TJ Watt. And to me, this is like Seth Rollins. Seth Rollins is new, not new on the scene. He's been around for a while, but TJ Watt being in the league very for a relatively short amount of time, but playing so well. Seth Rollins being in the WWE for, in a grand scheme of things, a relatively short amount of time, but accomplishing so much, and TJ Watt accomplishing so much. They go hand in hand, TJ Watt, Seth Rollins. The comparison here to me is a no-brainer as well. And those are the entire list of what everybody sent in. I appreciate, again, everyone sending stuff in. I really enjoy doing this. It combines two things of mine, sports and wrestling, that I love very dearly and love talking about and everything. So thank you all. I didn't think I was going to get this many replies about this, but you all made this segment fun and enjoyable. So, again, I appreciate you all sending everybody in that you did. The next segment on this week's Cars and Sack, we are going to talk college football. A quick little recap of Week 5. There's really not a ton to talk about. There weren't that many marquee games. Penn State went to Maryland, and Maryland's looking really not as great as they did the first two weeks, and that's sort of, I think, we overreacted how well they played offensively, but they're sort of settling to what they actually are. But Penn State looks legit. They win at Maryland on Friday, last Friday, 59-0. That same Friday night, Arizona State handed Cal 15th in the country their first loss, and the question with Cal has always been their offense, their defense is great their secondary is very good as well but it's always been with Cal will that offense ever be able if that defense is struggling to step up and at times Cal's offense looked extremely pedestrian and ultimately that cost them Saturday the big games Ohio State extends their win streak of beating teams by 40 or more continuing that they go to Nebraska and win 48 to 7 it was just an asking. I was a little nervous going into it as an Ohio State fan, but the way this team looks right now, it's dangerous. It's exciting how deep they are, how just fast they look at every position, how scary they look at every position. It's and it's it's an exciting time to be a Buckeye fan. Oklahoma handled Texas Tech. Wisconsin got a little scare from Northwestern. Wisconsin, I think, sort of a little hungover after the win last two weeks ago against Michigan, but ultimately that defense was able to come through for Wisconsin and get pressure on Wisconsin's quarterback. Excuse me. Wisconsin's defense was able to get pressure on Northwestern's quarterback and force some turnovers and some bad passes and really forced the issue, and Wisconsin was able to come away with a victory. Michigan rebounds off of that loss from Wisconsin two weeks ago to beat Rutgers 52-0. Texas A&M, 23rd in the country. They barely slide by a very dismal Arkansas team. I think the real like big story that you can talk about here from this past week was Clemson going to North Carolina and almost losing. North Carolina loses 20-21, to go for two at the... End of regulation after a late touchdown. To me, 
I I understand going for two, but I would have taken the field goal and played overtime. But I understand you kind of don't have any any place to any right to be in this game as is. So going for the win, I understand that, but it was a terrible play call and North Carolina's defense was able to make Clemson look Okay, I mean, Trevor Lawrence, 206 yards, only a touchdown. ETN, 67 yards, only a touchdown. Um, Higgins went off, though, as he has been prone to do. 129 yards and a touchdown. How for North Carolina, the true freshman looks like, if he continues to grow and develop, he's going to be a force in the ACC for the remaining time that he spends at Chapel Hill. Ultimately, I think this speaks more to maybe Clemson having some chinks in the armor, but... I don't think they're that noticeable and that bad. I think this was like North Carolina Super Bowl and they played it as that. And if I were anybody else on Clemson's schedule the rest of this year, I would be extremely concerned because I think this could serve as the wake-up call that Clemson needed that, okay, you won national championship last year. There's sort of that hangover period where things are sort of, you expect things to be easy, and then you have a game like this, you go on the road, and you get punched in the mouth, and then you're like, oh, shit, like, it's a totally new year, it's a totally different team, totally different circumstances, and I think that's what happened, and I think this just wakes up Clemson and makes them extremely dangerous. Speaking of national championships from last year, the team that Clemson beat in last year's national championship, Alabama hosted Ole Miss, and the story in this one, um, Smith for Devontae Smith for Alabama, 274 yards on 11 receptions, but most importantly, five touchdown receptions, sets or ties, I believe, the single-game touchdown receiving record for Alabama, and Alabama continues to look dangerous. Virginia, 18th in the country, went to number 10, Notre Dame. Notre Dame rebounds after the hard-fought, close loss they had to Georgia two weeks ago. Notre Dame's defense, to me, was sort of a question mark going into this game. How would they be able to handle Perkins, the running dual-third quarterback for Virginia? And they did sort of well, taking away his running ability, but the passing through the air, he was still able to put up 344 yards and two touchdowns. But Notre Dame's defense, which I think is the weakness of their team at times, uh, was able to force two turnovers um, as interceptions from Perkins. And I think that was really the story of the game. And Notre Dame on offense, Book didn't look terrible. He was able to play well enough where only 165 yards but zero touchdowns, no interceptions, so he didn't win him the game and he didn't lose him the game either. But Jones on the ground for Notre Dame, 131 yards and three touchdowns. Notre Dame to me is extremely intriguing because they still have a good enough schedule and they played Georgia well enough that if they were to win out, they still are going to find themselves in the college football playoff conversation. Continuing on, USC with third-string quarterback went to number 17, Washington. It was USC 21st in the country, Washington 17th. Washington ends up winning that one 28-14, and this game really wasn't as close as the score indicates. Washington pretty much dominated this entire game. And then, speaking of Washington, Washington State... Um, in the night game, went to Utah. Utah coming off their loss against USC two weeks ago. Utah ends up just imposing their will, forcing a couple turnovers. Um, Alex Gordon threw two of them for Washington State. And Huntley for Utah, who 
this Utah team has always been solid defensively, but a bit of a question mark on offense at times. He was able to put up 334 yards and two touchdowns. So that's the week five. Um, recap, recap, if, cap, if you cap, if you would, and look to week six. For week six in college football, there's not a huge slate of games that I'd like to talk about. There are a couple, though, so we're going to start with Friday, October 4th. UCF, 18th in the country, goes to Cincinnati. Cincinnati, um, if it is true, unveiled probably the sickest field in all of college football. If it is real, it gives Boise State with the blue turf a run for its money as the best field in all of college sports. I think Cincinnati is going to play UCF tough. I really like that it's at Cincinnati. I think Desmond Ritter and Luke Fickle are going to have a good offensive game plan drawn up. And UCF, in the game they did lose against Pitt, Pitt was very physical with them. And UCF, I think that is the brand of football they are known for now, is their physicality. So I'm going to take the Bearcats in a bit of an upset here in the AAC. So Cincinnati on Friday night upsets UCF in a very close game, but ultimately the Bearcats get it done. On Saturdays, we'll get to those games now. Michigan State, 25th in the country, goes to number four, Ohio State. I'm not worried about this game at all as an Ohio State fan. Uh, Michigan State hasn't scored a touchdown against Ohio State since 2016 or 17, I believe. That might change this week. The only reason I would be concerned about this game at all is like the supernatural and karma in the world where... Last week, I was worried about Nebraska, and that wasn't a close game. This week, I'm not worried about it at all, so I could see it being a closer game than I anticipate. But ultimately, I think Justin Fields is going to continue what he's been doing. J.K. Dobbins, the second leading rusher in the country, continue to what he's doing, and that Ohio State defense is going to be way too fast. I think... Michigan State can at times match the physicality of Ohio State, but Michigan State doesn't have the speed or the playmakers that Ohio State does, so I think that is going to be on full display when this game happens. Um, Let's see. Purdue goes to Penn State. I think Penn State wins that one pretty handily since Rondell Moore and Purdue's starting quarterback are out. Another Big Ten game, you have Iowa 14th in the country going to Michigan 19th in the country. Oh, this game is going to go a long way in either of these two teams' seasons. I, When I first saw this, I was really on Iowa's um, like bandwagon in this game just because their quarterback play uh, with Stanley, He normally their offense, Iowa's offense, is the weak point of their team, and the defense is what how physical and able, how able they are to take the ball away and get turnovers really helps Iowa. Their defense is still doing that, but Stanley through the air so far for Iowa has been a little bit better than just competent. I mean, he's got 965 yards and eight touchdowns. Shea Patterson for Michigan, 905 yards, six touchdowns, but two interceptions. If they can, if Iowa can take away the run game, which it is possible to do against Michigan, and force Shea Patterson to beat them, and where at times Shea Patterson forces balls and is prone to turnovers, I think Iowa has a good chance. It helps immensely that this game is at the big house for Michigan. So upon further thinking and talking it out, I am going to go with Michigan in a close game, but I... I know I'm sort of hedging this and kind of playing this on the fence, but it would not surprise me at all to see Iowa go into the big house and walk away um, with a win in this game. Boston College, just because it's a hometown game, I need to talk about it. Boston College comes into Louisville. This is 
I think in like a year and a half, this is the first time that Louisville's been favored in a game, and with good reason. Scott Satterfield has done a great job so far with highlighting the positives of this Louisville team and hiding the negatives. So I am going to go with Louisville in this one. Boston College, to me, is just not going to be able to keep up with the run game that Louisville is going to be able to impose. Next, we have Auburn going to Florida. Auburn 7th in the country. Florida 10th in the country. Bo Nix on the year for Auburn. 980 yards, 7 touchdowns, 2 interceptions. Felipe Franks for Florida. 698 yards, 5 touchdowns, 3 interceptions. To me, this screams like the ultimate SEC-CBS middle-of-the-day game where I think those games are so fucking boring. And I think this game is going to be extremely boring. Maybe like... 24 to 17 or 14 just a boring game that it's going to get highlighted because it's a battle of top 10 teams and it's the SEC and there's that and that's the storyline and everything but ultimately it's just not going to be a good game and I think ultimately it being in the swamp is going to help way too much and really for Bo Nix to go into this hostile environment and him to play well, I just don't see it happening. So I'm going to go with Florida coming out over Auburn this weekend. Uh, moving on, we continue with, gosh, Cal going to Oregon. Oregon, 13th in the country, uh, has played pretty well after losing in the first week to Auburn. Justin Herbert has looked as advertised since that game. 1,127 yards, 14 touchdowns. It's going to be really interesting to see how Oregon getting some of the receivers back and Herbert with that, how he is going to be able to go up against this Cal secondary. Uh, Again, I just think that the lack of an offense for Cal is going to be too much, and Oregon will ultimately end up winning this. And then... Jeez, Washington, 15th in the country, goes to Stanford. Stanford has looked way worse than what they were advertised this entire year, so I'm going to go with Washington. Let's now move to the NFL and the Thursday night game for Week 5. You have the Rams going to the Seahawks. The Rams coming off a real surprising loss at home to the Buccaneers where Jameis Winston looked incredible. Um, was throwing the ball all over the field to a plethora of wide receivers and looked good. Wasn't turning the ball over, put up big numbers. The Seahawks coming off a win last week against the Cardinals. To me, I just think Jared Goff plays way, way worse on the road than he does at home. And the Seahawks, the it doesn't, to me, it doesn't really matter except in a couple places if you play on the road, excuse me, in the NFL, but Seattle with the 12th man is one of those places, and Russell Wilson has played extremely well so far this year, so ultimately on Thursday night, I'm going to go with the Seahawks over the Rams. Next, in a very, on the Sunday games, you have a very important uh, AFC North matchup, the Ravens coming off the loss to the Browns last week, and then the Steelers finally getting their first win on Monday Night Football against the Bengals, where... They, Mason Rudolph looked okay, but ultimately there weren't a lot of down-the-field passes, and it was a lot of yards after catch. I don't think that's going to be able to get the Steelers wins in a lot of games. It was able to do against the Bengals just because they're not that great of a team. 
ultimately, I think Lamar Jackson and the Ravens, and it sucks to say this, rebound and go in to Pittsburgh and give the Steelers a loss. I think this could be a close game, but ultimately I think the playmaking ability of Lamar Jackson really shines through and shows, and the Ravens are able to beat the Steelers. This game, I really don't care about this next game at all, but the Cardinals go to the Bengals. One of these teams is going to get their first win, and with John Ross being out for the Bengals, that sort of leaves a big hole in the offense for the Bengals. So I'm going to go with Kyler Murray and the Cardinals and Cliff Kingsbury to get their first win. The Bills go to the Titans in our next game. The Bills suffering their first loss to the Patriots last week. The Titans um, losing last week as well. Oh, boy. To me, this just screams bored. Oh, excuse me. The Titans won last week against the Falcons. Um, Yeah, A.J. Brown went off. Um, I'm going to go with the Titans. Screw it. Yeah, sure. Marcus, If Marcus Mariota can continue to build on what he did last week and develop that connection with A.J. Brown and Derrick Henry runs like he has shown he can do um, for the last seven game, eight games, really, stretching back to last year, then to me, with how well the Titans defense plays, this is a no-brainer. And Josh Allen still could be a little banged up. So, yeah, Titans, to me, I think this is a no-brainer. Next, you have the Raiders and the Bears. This game will be played in London. The Raiders are going to be... Oh. Yeah. Okay, the Bears are going to be without Mitchell Trubisky. The Raiders are going to be without Khalil Mack because they traded him to the Bears. This is a big revenge game for Khalil Mack. Ultimately, though, I am going to go with the Raiders in this one. I don't know why. I just think maybe there's going to be some juju over in London, and John Gruden is going to be able to tap into that. And maybe that Raiders secondary and defense can force Chase Daniels into a couple turnovers and bad throws. But Chase Daniel looked pretty good last week when he came in against the Vikings. So... I might have just talked myself out of this, but nope, I'm sticking with the Raiders. Next in a, what could be a sneaky good game in the NFC South, it's going to have a lot of implications. You have the Buccaneers going to the Saints. The Saints have looked amazing without Drew Brees. Teddy Bridgewater hasn't really gone out and wowed anybody, but he hasn't played bad enough to where he is going to lose games for them. And the rest of the team, especially the defense, has stepped up in his absence. So I think the Saints are going to be able to force some turnovers from Jameis and win, and especially it being at New Orleans. Again, that helps a lot. So I'm going to go with the Saints over the Buccaneers. Next year, the Vikings going to the Giants. I think the Vikings are going to try and prove a point here with Kirk Cousins and let him throw the ball all over the place. And I really think, honestly, the Giants are one of the few teams that Kirk Cousins can have real success against because that secondary in that Giants defense is very poor near the bottom of the league. So I'm going to take the Vikings over the Giants. Next, you have the winless Jets going to the Eagles. The Eagles coming off that big win last week um, on Thursday night football going to Lambeau Field. I think the momentum continues to roll for the Eagles, and the Jets don't have enough. Um, firepower on offense, especially with receivers and quarterback play, to take advantage of what is the Eagles' weakness, the secondary. I know I'm harping a lot about the secondary this episode. I apologize about that, but I look for the Eagles to keep their momentum going. The next game, we have the Patriots going to the Redskins. This is a no-brainer. We're going to go with the Patriots there. The Jaguars go to the Panthers. This is going to be an interesting quarterback matchup, but 
I think the Jaguars are going to be able to continue to run the ball well against a very uh, middle-of-the-road run defense for the Panthers, and Gardner Minshew will be able to make enough plays, and I think the Jaguars' defense will be able to slow down McCaffrey enough so the Jaguars get that. Next, two teams that really need to win. You have the Falcons, 1-3, and three, going to the Texans, 2-2. Two and two. Um, This looks to be an extremely high-scoring game because both of these teams' offenses are ridiculous. I loved what I saw out of Deshaun Watson after the loss last week. He was immediately on the field after the game working with his own private quarterback coach. So I think the Texans are going to put up more points than the Falcons and ultimately win because that's how you win in the NFL. You score more points than the other team. And I think look for DeAndre Hopkins, who's gone a little quiet after the first and second week of the NFL season, to have a big game here and the Texans come out on top. Next, you have the Broncos going to the Chargers. The Broncos are two field goals away from being 2-2 two and two and being right in the AFC uh, West conversation and whatnot, but things just haven't gone their way just yet, and I think things are going to continue to not go their way. I think the Chargers win this one. And it, to me, I really like how the Chargers handled having Melvin Gordon back. They still rewarded. They, he didn't play. He still rewarded Austin Eckler for being there. And Eckler is so good at what he does, being the pass-catching guy. And when he does get to run the ball, excels there as well. And I think that continues as well. Um, it'll be interesting to see how they do use Melvin Gordon and Eckler this week now that Gordon's going to have a full week of practice. And I really don't think it's a bad thing at all. You have two backs that are pretty much the same with their skill set and they both excel and do well in both of what they can do I mean passing not passing catching the ball and running the ball so really it's a win-win for the Chargers and I as I mentioned I think they do end up winning um Next game, you have a battle of three and one teams. You have the Packers going to the Cowboys. The Packers, as I mentioned, losing to the Eagles last Thursday, and then the Cowboys, um, that offense going completely MIA against the tough Saints defense on Sunday Night Football last week. Oh, boy. I think the Cowboys are going to win this game. I think it's a big rebound game for them. I think Kellen Moore might feel a little bit challenged. Um, Jerry Jones did mention in an interview that that's where the blame would go. He didn't blame Kellen Moore, but he said, I think that's where the blame from fans and everything, that's where they'll look to put the blame. And I think maybe Kellen Moore is going to call a hell of a game in response to that. Um, The... Packers defense has looked a little lackluster last week, and I think the Cowboys are going to be able to exploit that and end up winning this game. And if they can get Michael Gallup back, that's going to help Dak an extremely high amount because he has looked to him the most, he's targeted the most. I know Amari Cooper is the wide receiver you think of when you think of Cowboys football, but Gallup has been Dak's favorite receiver, and if things are continuing to trend on the injury report, as they have so far this week, Gallup could be back this week, and that helps the Cowboys offense out a ton. Um, The Sunday night game, you have the Colts going to the Chiefs. I think the Chiefs are going to win this one. They were tested last week by the Lions, but I think the Colts just don't have enough offensively, um, 
to stay with the Chiefs. And without T.Y. Hilton, who he could be back, I'm not sure right now at the time I'm recording this, but if he's not back, that offense is going to really suffer from that, especially in this game. So I expect the Chiefs to end up winning this one. And then the Monday night game, you have the Browns who are tied for the lead in the AFC North. No, they are just not tied. They are the AFC North leaders right now going to the 49ers. Um, To me, I think the Browns' defense is going to go into San Francisco, force Jimmy Garoppolo to make some bad throws, force some turnovers. I think the Browns' defense is going to be able to shut down the run and make the 49ers rely too much on the pass and – make it obvious and force some, as I mentioned, force some turnovers from Garoppolo. And if Freddie Kitchens calls half a game as well as he did against the Ravens last week, then I really think the Browns are starting to put things together. And I think the first step in that was the game last week where they went into Baltimore and dominated on both sides of the ball. And I just, it just, to me, it's all sort of starting to come together. Now, they can't come out in this game and rest on their laurels about what they did last week and be like, oh, look at us. Look what we just did. We did this. We're so good. They have to come out hungry like they did. And I think Baker Mayfield and Freddie Kitchens are good enough leaders to where they won't do that. I think they already did that in the first game against Tennessee. They cannot do that again. They cannot have an- another mental lapse, and I don't think they're going to. So on Monday night, I think the Browns are going to end up beating the 49ers to give the 49ers their first loss of the year. All right, I know I mentioned I was going to talk about baseball. Admittedly, baseball is one of my weaker points as a sports fan, so bear with me here. Um, last night in the NL Wild Card, the Nationals were able to beat the Brewers, so they go on to face the Dodgers. Tonight, you have the Rays going up against the Athletics. I am going to take the Athletics. They've just been the hotter team the last couple weeks of the season, so I think that's. I think the Athletics go on to play the Yankees. Excuse me, go on to play the Astros. In the NL, it shapes up where the Cardinals are playing the Braves and the Nationals are playing the Dodgers. I think the Braves go on and beat the Cardinals and I think the Dodgers beat the Nationals and then the A's will play the Astros and the AL and then the Twins play the Yankees. The Twins and the Yankees is going to be an extremely fun series to watch. There's going to be a lot of offense, but I think the Astros are going to get past the A's and I think the Yankees are going to get past the Twins. I think the even though the Twins had the most homers all year, I think um, it's about time Aaron Judge and John Carlo Stanton and a couple other of those guys, as the Yankees fans like to say, earn their pinstripes, and this is the postseason for them to do it. So I think that the Yankees will be able to beat the Twins. So in your um, championship series, you have the Braves going up against the Dodgers and the Yankees going up against the Astros. Um the better teams, I really think, are the Astros and the Dodgers. I, I think, shit. The, okay, yeah, sure. I really just want the Braves to go on and make a run at this thing. So I'm going to say they beat the Dodgers, and I think the Astros end up beating the Yankees. I think the Astros are just a more well, more complete team, and the pitchings they have, the pitchers they have with Verlander and Cole are just that one-two punch is so. 
important, and the rotation and pitching in October is obviously so important. And the Yankees just don't have that to match with the Astros. Offensively, they do, but pitching-wise, they just don't. So, to me, the World Series are going to be the Astros and the Braves, and I think it's really the Astros then at that point to lose. The Braves are such a young team, and if they can keep those pieces that they have together, this could be a preview of what could come for years to come in Atlanta with the Braves, but I just think the Astros, all in all, are the most complete team right now um, going in these playoffs, and I know the Dodgers... um, it obviously it easily could end up Dodgers Astros again because the Dodgers, to me, are the best team in the NL. But I think the Braves might get hot and strike fire and be able to make a run to the World Series. I'm hoping for that to happen since the Indians are out of it and I don't really have a rooting interest now. I'm probably not going to really watch a bunch of these games honestly until really the championship series or the World Series. So all in all, in my Very humble and modest opinion. I think the Astros end up beating the Braves in five or six games. But again, hedging a little bit and playing the middle of and being in the middle of the fence, not really one to pick a side. I could easily see it being again the Dodgers and the Astros. But ultimately, I don't think the Dodgers pull through either way. And I think the Astros end up winning the World Series. All right, that is going to do it for episode 58 of Carson Sack Podcast. I appreciate the patience. This is coming out a day later than normal, so thank you. I will be back next week, as I said, barring any crazy unforeseen circumstances. Thank you for tuning in. Like, rate, review, subscribe to Carson Sack Podcast, where we talk balls. And as we always end on Carson Sack, we will be seeing Luxury, chitty ching ching, could buy anything, cop that, oh oh, color greens, three degrees low, make it half of me, drop that, oh oh oh, damn, yeah, shit, can't shoot, stop this, yeah, yeah, with the shit, I-